A little bit more to talk about. Um, I don't think we adequately hammered home that none of us can keep the law perfectly. Really? That was very clear. We have more to say on the topic. Really? Yes, you yes. Have more to say. We can I'm using the royal we. On that topic for the rest of time. Well, Calvinists do love to Calvinate. Um, I, I, there's just a nice uh, couple of other verses to bring up, I think, that, that are... Because the whole thing, obviously, is going to be segueing into what hope do we have? And you can really quickly just say, yeah, 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 we're doomed. We've got no chance on our own. Let's get to the Jesus stuff. But the Bible doesn't do that. When you read Romans... How long do you go through all our attempts and failures to be right in God's eyes before you get to the but God section? In Ephesians, how long do you go through that? It's part of Christian theology that, that it kind of follows the meta-narrative. Uh, and the more you race through the early stuff, even though that's probably preferable in the flesh, the, more, the less impact it has when you talk about the uh, climax of it all, when, when Christ comes. It's funny to talk about racing through when we've been in the Ten Commandments for we're not the Ten Commandments. quite a while. No, but we were for quite a while, which every single one you talk about makes it clear. You're not up to snuff. Ah, I see. You're saying maybe it should have sunk in via those particulars. Well, this is a conclusory. I didn't write the <laughs> catechism. <laughs> We've got a couple questions here, and I think the one that we're going to get to in just a few minutes is, uh, it's not just like, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, um, although, I mean, you are, but uh, it's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Richard's not here, you're my other go-to guy, but uh, it gets into a kind of an interesting discussion, I think, of the relative badness of different sins, and I, I think it's a fun discussion to have, but um, because it does, people have strong deeply ingrained views on it that usually they they can't square with all of scripture uh let's go to lord in prayer and then we will have a look at this lord we thank you for uh the catechism uh we thank you for the westminster divine so many years ago centuries ago who who put this together and for the great spurgeon who brought it into conformity with the baptist confession lord we do thank you for all the many who came before us uh, in our tradition. Lord, we thank you for the, the uh, wonderful grace that has been shown to us that we can meet together and worship, unlike the early Baptists who were uh, exiled and, and put in the stocks and pilloried and, and beaten and, and things for their faith. Lord, we thank you that we can meet together. Lord, we pray that our faith would not be the weaker for it, uh, that we don't uh, in, at present suffer uh, for exercising it and for believing as we do and teaching as we do and, and gathering together to open your word together. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, the depth of our own sin and the uh, absolute magnitude, infinite magnitude of your grace and mercy uh, as we continue to look at this document. Uh, we pray, Lord, that those things would be in view for us as well as we continue this journey through Advent, thinking of the pitch black darkness the world was in uh, when the light of the world was born and placed in a manger. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the way that you brought salvation to mankind. Uh, we thank you for every gift you give us, including 
uh, the gift of this building. Lord, we pray that it would be warm enough for us to worship this morning uh, and not a distraction. We pray that the door would close and lock when we leave and that we thank you that we, we will undoubtedly be able to make a call and have someone come and fix it and be able to pay them for it. What, what great gifts you give us. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, not take them for granted. Uh, and we pray that this morning would be a, a time to focus on you and you alone. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So we left off um, talking about how we were unable uh, of ourselves to keep the commandments. There's a, a number of things I was going to have us look up. You know, after you're saved, can you? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, I want to just jump ahead because I sense the room's antsy. Um, to the notion of sinless perfection for believers. I don't think we can move on from this, this passage, this, this catechism question, without addressing it because it is actually a part of, built into, some Christian traditions. That if you've been a Christian for an amount of time and you've matured, you will at some point reach this plane of sinless perfection where you no longer sin. And if you do, it is just the very rarest of exceptions to the rule, which is your perfect righteousness. Um, I'm going to go ahead and call shenanigans on that one. I don't think you could ever read God's word and find that happening. Uh, There are some passages that kind of point us in that direction that we'll look at in their context and discuss. But, I mean... Let's start, let's start with these. I have three I would like you to look up that are of, of interest. Job 9.20. Who's got Job? I'm going to write them all down first. Okay. Uh, Philippians 3.12. I got Job. Nice. It's your Job to find that one. This is stupid. 1 John 1.8. That's those three. I can get first John, because there I am at it. All right, let's hear uh, Job 9.20, please. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. So we've got a guy saying he's blameless. Now that is Job's, uh, maybe his folly slowly more and more through the book. At first, he, he doesn't cry foul when these bad things are having to him. By the end, he so demands an audience with God that God kind of snaps a little bit, if that can happen, and, and rebukes him. But there's the claim of sinless perfection. Is it true in that case? Blameless? Blameless? Think about that word. Without blame. It can't be, right? Simply because... Even if it's a sin of omission, when he failed to... I mean, he's got all these kids. He's trying to make all the right sacrifices for them every time they go out and party. Maybe sometimes he should have taken one aside and said, cool it on the partying, uh, rather than just making this... And who knows? But certainly the, the claim, I, I would think, is dubious. We Read uh, Philippians 3.12, whoever looked that one up. Or do I need to look up? I wonder how quick we can get there. 3.12. I have it. Okay. Not that I am already obtained, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay. Did I get the right one? You did indeed. Uh, I guess a little context, just very little context would help when he says, talks about this, having attained this. 
that this is, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he says, I haven't attained that yet, and I haven't been made perfect yet. But I press on. But I press on. I'm moving forward. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know he hasn't been made perfect yet. He seems to be, well, uh, snarky and sometimes say things a little bit more strongly than he has to and, and more zealous for the truth than zealous for um, caring for his people. And that's just because he's human. But he's pressing on. And, and I mean, God is always mellowing people. In fact, this is a, an aside, but I've been studying the Pilgrim's Progress because I'm planning to do a podcast of it, which is uh, kind of something I'm really excited about right now for the new year. Uh, but uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress... There's a, a talk with this old man, Honest, uh, and uh, he and Mr. Greatheart are talking about how there are some older Christians who mistake the, like, slow um, degradation of their passions by the natural processes of age for true maturity. <laughs> I was thinking about that for the longest time going, have I done that? That, like, you know, you get less angry. You don't have the angry chemicals going through you when you're... 40 that you do when you're 19, and I imagine that by the time you're 60, they've died down a little more, or the, the kind of uh, uh, lusts, that, the lusts of youthful lusts that we're told to flee from, you probably don't have to think so much about fleeing from them as you get older, you definitely don't. I, I know that for a fact that these things tend to kind of, and I don't want to besmirch Bunyan, and certainly I think there is a, uh, something to be on guard for, to think, well, we have... Uh, made all this progress when really it's just like you sowed your wild oats and now you're done and you're claiming some victory. But to see God being at work in the life of Paul or John, think about John as this guy, he's like, I want to call down fire from heaven to burn up a town. A, a town. Who lives in a town? Men, yes, but also women and children. That's crazy town. That's psycho stuff. They're, they're the sons of thunder because how zealous they are. What is it that he then writes about in his three epistles when he's an old man? Love, love, love. love. It's all love. And when he was really old, like so old he couldn't see and he couldn't walk, in his church, tradition tells us they would pick him up, bring him to the front, and he would give a little tiny sermon every week, which was always the same and was just little children love one another. That's not just somebody who was really angry as a, a youth getting more mellowed by, by time. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Same thing's happening in Paul. Did John at that point reach sinless perfection? Well, he's one of the main authors that people are going to point to for that doctrine. So let's keep going. Who's got 1 John 1, 8? I do. Let's hear it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That seems pretty cut and dry mm -hmm. to me. That, that self-deception, you can justify what you continue to do as a believer to the point where you feel like, well, yes, I'm very righteous, but you've gone down a pharisaical route at that point, right? Rather than going, yes, I'm sinful and I sin yet because the old man is in me, but I have an advocate and I am justified. You go, well, no, no, now I'm on God's team, so everything I do needs to be good, so I'm going to justify the sins themselves. To me, that is one of the biggest dangers in walking the pilgrim road of becoming more and more a, a mature Christian is to start 
becoming less horrified by my sins and assuming they must be justified because I'm a Christian and have been for years. I'm a pastor. I'm outwardly, people don't look at me and go, oh, wow, that guy's full of scandal. And no, so it must be okay. And you become comfortable with them. We have to be so careful because I think the claim of sinless perfection insists that you start playing that game, right? Can you think of a way that somebody could claim sinless perfection without having to justify the sins that continue to exist in their heart and in their mind and even in their words and things? Go back to the garden before the fall. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so there is this term, so there's, there's blameless, there's also upright, and they're often paired together. Uh, for Job, they're paired together. We talked, Steve brought up last week, um, I pointed out where he usually sits, he's not there, you're not going crazy. Um, that, that term comes up a lot in the Old Testament. Noah is upright, okay? Yashar is the term, and it just means kind of like straight, straight and, and up and down rather than kind of bent or crooked. Um, Noah, Job, Hezekiah, all are said to be upright. And you look at their lives and go, oh yeah, compared to his neighbors, Noah certainly is upright. He's not following his heart, which is the most rookie move a human can make. And also some of the most common advice that humans give. Uh, he's not following the deceitful heart into sin everywhere. Uh, instead, he's following God. He's trying to be uh, a, a faithful servant of the king. Uh, Job, he is said to be, he's not just making the claim himself, he's said to be upright and blameless by God in heaven. Well, God is sort of, I don't know, what do you call this trash talk? Uh, the devil, hey, did you check out Job? Pretty holy this week. And the devil's like, oh, it's only because of all these things that you've given him. And this begins the whole thing. But at the beginning, he's said to be upright. And then you have Hezekiah. Uh, and yet, even though he was, I mean, when, you're, when the yardstick is the other kings of Israel and Judah, it's not that hard to stand out. Uh, but look at the sins that are then related by these people in the pages of Scripture. Uh, you've got drunkenness, ingratitude, impatience in being reproved, even by God himself. I mean, some pretty serious things. You can be upright. You can live a life that is a righteous life. In fact, elders are said you, you, they, they need to be above reproach. Well, no one's above reproach if we're looking at it from God's point of view. We can't, though. It's, the idea is they are pressing on as well, right? They are continuing to become more and more like Jesus. And I think part of pressing on is a willingness to admit where you've fallen short. Without that, the whole thing becomes a fiction. And that's, you know, that's during the Reformation, the, the claim that was made about the, the gospel itself, without all the bells and whistles added to it, it's just a legal fiction. It's saying, I haven't yet lived a perfect life, but I'm counted as having lived one by God. Well, that's because Christ did live the perfect life, and that's credited to me and imputed to me, his righteousness, but also my heart has changed, and I am bent in that direction now, which is being bent back to being upright again. Uh, and I'm moving in that direction now. So um, we've looked at 1 John 1, 8 and said, cool, no problem. John's on our side. Somebody flip over to 1 John 3, 9 and make sense of that for me. 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
The ESV does a little, I think, important and justified interpretive work in the translation there uh, with the practice of sinning. And what they're trying to translate is the Greek tense. Uh, does anyone have the NIV or better yet, even maybe the King James? Uh, no, one who is, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So that would be your text that, that people in those traditions who claim the necessity and the attainability of sinless perfection would point to. Uh, and the one Margaret read for us is a little bit more wooden translation of the Greek. Continue sinning or go on sinning means you're not born of God slash born again. And if you are born again, then you won't continue sinning. Now, I, I think that uh, you find the solution to the seeming contradiction. Either, either John forgot what he wrote like two pages ago or the two things aren't incompatible. Um, some would say in 1 John uh, 1.8, anyone who claims to be without sin is referencing their former life. They had sin. There's some sin that had to be forgiven, but that doesn't work. It doesn't work with the grammar either or with the context. Um, but the ESV saying anyone who makes a practice of sinning. Uh, it, and I believe that what we're seeing there is anyone who stops pressing on, who says, oh, I'm, I'm forgiven. Great. I can keep on sinning because I'm covered. John condemns that. Paul also does, right? In Romans. What then? Should we go on sinning? Still, the grace may Which means H-E, double hockey sticks. No. Uh, the, the idea of, and then Peter also, Peter goes after it. Don't use your, um, your, the, the grace of God as license or for license. So, I mean, now we're talking about literally the kind of triumvirate of the top apostles, your, your first round draft pick apostles, all emphasizing this notion that you had better not think of your sins as being justifiable, rather yourself as being justified. But the fact that we needed the justification and continue to need to confess our sins, like 1 John 1, 8 says, it really informs how we view our current lives as sinful. And is it still true to this day as redeemed people that even our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags in his sight? Yes. Anybody want to take the counter? Well, I'm trying to remember the context in which that particular thing was said. If he was talking about his life as a Pharisee and all of these righteous deeds apart from Christ are mm, from, that's bags. from Isaiah. If you continue to sin, you're wrong. Yeah, but that's not what that's asking. That's not what... It's saying, if we have righteous deeds, are those still filthy in God's sight after we're saved? So, yeah, so can you do something in this life now, this side of glorification, that is not tainted by the old Adam oh, okay. or then Eve? In other words, could you go and help someone in a way that didn't 
kind of involves some pride of, oh, I'm good. Could you finish reading the Bible in less than a year without comparing yourself to those people who failed to read through it through 50 years of being a Christian? Um, is there a way that you could somehow avoid the flesh coming in? And, you know, when we talk about the total depravity of man, we don't mean that every person is as bad as they could be in every way. That's not true. Hitler is worse than all of you. <laughs> I, I can say that confidently. But it means that these, the fall and sin, the curse and the brokenness and, and the sin nature has touched every part of us. And it is not erased from who you are, its presence. It is, it is removed from how God sees you. It's, it's um, claim on you, but it's not just gone immediately. You notice that when you got saved, right? That you still sinned, you still struggled. And I think in the same way that we can say we should be um, not going, I need to be sinless, but I need to sin less. We also could say, I'm not going to reach a point in this life where my good deeds are perfectly spotless, but they are going to be less and less tainted by sin as I am more and more made into the image, remade into the image of, of God and, and, and of Christ. And I am going to, by the end, perhaps have just a little of the old self left in my, you know, I mean, when you think about the sorts of sins that can come in and corrupt good deeds, uh, a lot of them are rooted in how others see us or how we see ourselves. And the longer we follow Jesus, the less we care how others see us, unless it's as a witness, and the more we see ourselves through God's eyes. Is that fair? Yeah. So the question was can any mere man after the fall keep the commands perfectly and we can ask is that even possible for the believer and i think the answer continues to be no you still are completely relying on god's grace and this is why double imputation is important which is a, a long and dry way to say something that's a beautiful sweet concept uh, I was at a funeral once, and I saw a big, long banner, and it said, it had the cross in the middle, and it said, minus 10, minus 9, minus 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, cross was right under 0, and then 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and under the negative 10, it said, fully sinful, and under the positive 10, it said, perfection, and the idea was... This must have been a teaching tool for a uh, sermon series or for a class. The, the texts that were written uh, on the banner as well made it clear. The idea was I come to God at a negative 10. Hopefully the idea was he immediately, this is still wrong, but hopefully he brings me to the zero when I come to the cross immediately. So my sins are gone. And now I start working my way up to plus 10. And we'll see how close I get by the time I die. And then hopefully again, the idea was at death, boom, I get the, the full uh, righteousness that I would need to be in God's presence, which is total righteousness. The idea of double imputation means 
that when Jesus died, he didn't just take my sins into himself, leaving me at zero, where Adam and Eve were, and still were not secure, right? But rather, he took my sins and in exchange imputed to me his righteousness, giving me plus infinity in my standing before God. And now what's happening in my life, and that's why this chart is just, you don't remake the chart, you just throw it away, is my life and conduct, and like what the King James calls my conversation, uh, now catching up with who I am in Christ, who God sees when he looks at me through Christ. Uh, and if I'm truly born again, these two things can't remain as far apart as they are day after day after day. They're going to, it's like a, the, the poles of magnets. They're going to come together uh, slowly, slowly, sometimes in big bursts forward. I've known people who've made big breakthroughs and I myself have. And sometimes it's a slog over six months to try and overcome one little sin that nobody else can even uh, recognize in me. But there's going to be that pull. Paul sees it as pressing forward, but I think we could also see it as being pulled forward because it's, as Paul says, it's by the power of, of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's him to will and to do in us, right? So see Romans 8, 3 to 4. Let me just quickly read that one. Unless somebody can find it for me, but I bet you can't. Here we are. Um, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Uh, NIV is bad here. NASB says propitiation. That's better. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. You have wrapped up in that little statement both the fact that I couldn't do this and that Christ actually has done it for me. And I don't know, I don't know that I would want to have gotten at the cross immediately to a place where by my own heart I was righteous all the time. I think that would tend toward me forgetting the great debt I owed. Of course, then I'd be sinning again. But the fact that we lean on him for every little baby step along the way teaches us more about us and teaches us more about him, doesn't it? That, that I, and that whenever I start to get prideful or cocky in my walk, I fall down, I fall to the dumbest sins, the stupidest little situations will trip me up, and I go, oh, that's right. I can't do this on my own. Even though justification is an act of God, he does it himself, boom, it's done. It can't be half done. It's an act, not a work. Glorification is an act of God, too. No purgatory where it slowly happens and you suffer for it. No, boom, it's done. But sanctification is a work of God. We actually cooperate, but it's like when Calvin was, I don't know, how old are kids when they learn to walk? I've forgotten. Whatever age. And, and he would hold onto my hand and like, like a drunk little toddler. like, and, and you go, okay, he's walking. He's doing it. But if I let go for a second, he's going to face plant. And it might be a little funny for a second, but it's also going to be kind of sad. So um, we, we have to remember that Without him, not only can we not reach sinless perfection, we can't reach zero. 
You know, we, we have to rely entirely on him. I think this stuff is worth belaboring because it is the, the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of what Luther kind of rediscovers and nails to the, the door of the castle church. It's, it's really a way to keep in check our own self-righteousness as Christians. And if ever there's been a problem that the church has had through the ages and definitely has right now, it's self-righteousness. Am I right? Um, I've got other questions I was going to ask. Like in Matthew 19, 18, doesn't Jesus command the young man to keep the law? Why would Jesus command him to do it if he can't do it? You all know the answer to that, right? The law is the schoolmaster. Boom, uppercut, shoves you to the foot of the cross. That's the role of the law. We've talked about that at length. Uh, Flavel Flav, uh, John Flavel, who tradition tells us wore a large sundial around his neck. If David was here, he'd get it. Flavor Flav is a rapper or a giant clock. Okay, never mind. Um, Sean got it. He just didn't think it was. Sean, <laughs> that's about right. Uh, he asked, "What may we learn from man's inability to keep the commandments perfectly in this life?" Answer: That we must be wholly indebted to the free grace of God for salvation and eternal life. He cites Titus three five. If you're interested. And not to anything in ourselves, who are at best but unprofitable servants. Luke seventeen ten. I think that uh, what we can infer. I've got. I had more stuff. I was going to have us look up to get to this point, but I think we're there. The curse of your sin lies either on yourself or on Christ, and this continues to be the case every day as we move forward. Um, there's a famous Puritan saying. All of God's people should sigh under the, quote, unhappy necessity of sin. And I have to wonder, is it a necessity? Did they use that word in a slightly different way back then? I don't know. Hmm. I mean, necessary would mean the same thing. And necessity is a thing that is necessary. This is kind of how we started the discussion of this question, right? How long has it been since you've sinned? Could you have gone a day? Or is it a necessity that you will have sinned, but an unhappy one? A sad necessity. Can be reality. Okay. I mean, thinking of word usage. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe the word necessity has evolved a little bit to, to mean something that it's kind of pointless to fight against because it's necessary, right? Um, it's a necessary evil, but it's necessary all the same. And that, that certainly wasn't the idea. I think what they were getting at was, oh, wretched man that I am, right? What I want to do, I don't do. That stuff that I don't want to do, that I'm doing all the time. There's this, yeah, reality, this unhappy necessity that fallen people, even saved sinners, will sin. But it doesn't mean we will make a practice of sinning. If you read in, in 1 John 3, or continue in willful sin. That when we sin, it would be because we fell, not because we thumbed our nose at God, knowing that later on we could come back and say, sorry, and he'd be like, ah, no big deal. That is what all of the top apostles agree is incompatible with the Christian life. Maybe a little hinge between questions 65 and 66 would be James 2.10, a text we are going to beat to death like a, a, a 
living horse and then continue beating as a dead horse. Um, as we discuss its meaning. Wow, i got some ripped pages in here. That's sad. Pick fix this thing up. James 2.10, who's got that? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Or the NIV, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I think that also informs how we view ourselves uh, even as we get more and more righteous. We think we get to a point of sinless perfection. Look back and go, find the most minute sin. In thought, in omission, you may as well have broken them all as far as being sinless. That, that breaking one of them it has that, that effect on your standing before God. But to get us to the next point, I think we need to ask the question, does James 2.10 teach something greater than that? That every sin is essentially equal in God's eyes. Uh, is he just saying you can't pick and choose? You can't get partial credit? Or is he saying, hey, if you struggle with this sin here and someone else is <coughs> sinning this other sin here and this one seems more significant, don't fool yourself. They're all the same in my eyes. I hear that quite a bit. Do you ever hear that? I've heard that preached from pulpits. I've heard that spoken as if it were the most obvious or the most established thing in a Bible study or other setting. And that's the next question. We have time to move on to that for a little while, don't we? What time is it? 10.13. Yeah, yeah, let's, just, let's introduce it. Question 66. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Now that word has changed meaning since Bill and Ted. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer. Some sins in themselves and by reason of various aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. More heinous in the sight of God than others. Because of various aggravations. That reminds me of the idea of aggravated assault. I remember when I was a little kid and I had first heard that term somewhere on the news or something and I had punched my sister and my mom was like, hey, you really hurt your sister, apologize. And I said, hey, it's not my fault, it was an aggravated assault. What I meant was she aggravated me and I assaulted her. But that's not what aggravated was. And for a while I thought, why, is, why does that make it like less of a punishment? That guy aggravated you? No, obviously aggravations are things that, that make it worse. That, that make it more grave, more serious. So in the case of aggravated assault, if you've caused great bodily harm to someone um, or you, know, you immediately, there, there are a number of things that make it worse than uh, it could have been. And in this case, there are some things that make particular sins aggravated sins. I don't think that we have, I know we don't have time to go through all of this. So let me just maybe uh, drop in with an old timey sermon illustration. Uh, and, and then we'll look at a couple verses. When the truly devoted missionary, Henry Martin, was at Shiraz in Persia, translating the New Testament into the language of that country, he seems to have been delighted with the following incident, which he notes in his journal, June 28, 1811. The poor boy, says he, while writing how one of the servants of the high priest struck the Lord on the face, stopped and said, Sir, did not his hand dry up? 
What a great response. Kim, you don't, you don't like it? <laughs> Kim wouldn't have even mentioned it in her journal if it had happened to her. She'd have been like, that dumb kid, no his hand in Well, I mean, Jesus encounters uh, a, a man in, the, in a synagogue once whose hand is withered and he restores it. And one would think that if... That'd be a nice bookend. Right? Yeah, somebody would have whacked him and then suddenly it would have... Although that sort of uh, implied vengeance in there, even at any level, would have kind of gone against the, the thrust of the, the gospel narrative, I think, of Jesus uh, being uh, put to death unjustly. Although he, do, he does call the guy on it. Hey, what did I say that was wrong? If not, why'd you hit me? Uh, but I think what that gets to is one aggravation. Who is it that is being wronged? Uh, my mentor, Michael Whitmer, uh, wrote a book about hell when that was all the rage, when um, love wins. All the rage yeah. this year. <laughs> all the rage. Uh, no, when, when Michael, or when uh, Rob Bell had written uh, Love Wins, and it was kind of a reinvention of Christianity and how we read the Bible and things. And uh, one of the things, the, one of the primary things was the notion that hell was introduced in the intertestamental period by the Pharisees. And when Jesus talks about it, he's just sort of riffing on one of their ideas rather than talking about something real. Uh, and it be, the main argument behind it being, how could it be just to punish a lesser sin with eternal damnation? And he had a uh, chapter that talked about who is wronged and how, et cetera, et cetera, and different aggravating factors that we even acknowledge in crimes today. So to kill is wrong, right? If you kill a mosquito, though, nobody cares. Erin killed last night. She killed a mouse. I'm still sad about it, but I didn't stop her, even though I had the power. Um, and now she put a deadly trap in the counter because the mouse had been piling up a little mountain of dog food. I was trying to put something away and I was taking everything out. I'm like, what is that? It's like this little it was stash. a goofy little mouse and it was making it and now it's dead. Um, but no one really cares. I can tell by your faces. I all of you are unmoved. Mouse. You don't know. It's not like he's twirling his mustache saying, I left the pit. I mean, he's stealing from the dog. He was stealing from the dog. Uh, I feel like I've derailed my own thing here. It, I, it, never mind, I derailed Mike Winter's thing. I'm fine. Uh, so no one cares if you kill a mouse. No one cares if you kill a mosquito or a fly. Kill a dog. We think, there's something wrong with you. A kid kills a dog? What do we do? We say, let's take him aside and, and talk to somebody. And if an adult kills a dog... Generally, unless they're a vet, they're charged with a crime, but they don't go to jail for the rest of their lives. Kill a person, well, you're in huge trouble. If you kill a uh, child, we think of the worst kind of person in the world. We'll bury you under the jail. Uh, if someone believes in the death penalty, they say, you know, let me throw the switch. That person is a monster. Okay, we'll put you in jail for the rest of your life. You kill the president. We will light you up, right? Because that is now a different kind of crime. We acknowledge that even the same offense, when it has a different offended party, has different levels of, of seriousness or grave or aggravating factors involved there. And it's actually Stoic philosophy that teaches that all sins are effectively equal. And... I 
do get confused by pastors bringing that out based on how the scriptures show God dealing with different sins in different ways from the very beginning. Granted, I think that when you, it's almost like that thing, and I haven't thought this through, it just came in my head. It's like that thing where a feather and a bowling ball will fall at the same rate, right? Minus wind resistance. And so you'd put them, you know, you'd have to put them like a vacuum and they would fall at the same rate. Uh, and, and you go, okay, well, that, that makes sense, I guess, when I think about the science behind it. But when you actually drop them uh, in our world today, the feather's gonna, you know, forest gump its way down to the ground and the bowling ball's just gonna go goosh right down. In the same way, you'd have to go back into the garden to see this kind of thing where James 2.10, you break one law, you've broken them all, happens in kind of that moral vacuum, right? They eat the wrong fruit. And you go, holy cow. Yeah, you ate the wrong thing. Now you're forever banished and pain in childbirth forever and uh, sweat of the brow and thorns and death, which wasn't, so it's a death sentence for eating the wrong fruit. Well, they were moving from that covenant of works, state of perfection, sinlessness into now uh, the curse. Living in the world of the curse, you look around and the it's easier to see the difference, I think, between the falling of the uh, feather and the bowling ball. I'm going to have to listen to that again later to make sure it's not accidentally heresy, but I think it might not be. <laughs> but let's say that David had just lusted after Bathsheba. He'd gone up on the roof of his palace. He should have been off to war, but he wasn't. Maybe he, I don't know, had an injury and a note from the doctor. Who knows? But he goes up on the roof of the palace. Uh, I've been there. It's crazy how sure we can be that I was there because all of the mighty men's homes are there and next to it. It's cool. Um, and he looks down, he sees her bathing. What if he had lusted after her and then gone, what am I doing? And then as he thought about it, had thought, man, she is beautiful. That Uriah, I wish I had his wife, coveting his neighbor's wife. Uh, and then thought, you know, gosh, I, I kind of hate him. Oh, well, moving on to other things. Let's go have some figs or do whatever kings do when they're not spying on their neighbor's wives. Would that have been as grievous a sin? Would that have led to the consequences that the far greater sins have led to? Why not? Well, not the same consequences, but probably still consequences. Well, if you think about the consequences being like the the death of that child, the child wouldn't have existed. That's getting, I guess, into earthly consequences. He wouldn't have killed, uh, had Uriah killed because he wouldn't have had to cover something up and he wouldn't have wronged Bathsheba. And the only person who would have been harmed in that situation was him. Right, yeah. A sexual sin, sin against one's own body. It's still very serious. But I think we could say less serious than compounding it, at least with murder, adultery. I don't know how we're defining these things when in the modern era, but I tend to think not fully consensual stuff when the king says, bring that woman here. That sounds like you're dealing with a really awful crime and sin um, where it, wherein she has no choice and is, is very much a victim. Uh, and then later when she's a little conniving, you're like, good for you. You forget <laughs> that, yeah, that's still this simple. But looking at that and thinking, yes, I mean, for sure, Solomon wasn't like married to 
the one wife he loved and constantly doting on her and faithful to her. And yet the kinds of punishments that come on David for some of these super grievous sins don't come on him. And you go, well, this guy's definitely not walking around sinless, upright, and blameless. There is indeed a hierarchy of sins. I think that's common sense. And I think even those who would deny the truth of it wouldn't be able to live a life consistent with it. And I'm not just talking about, I mean, you could say they're all equally bad, but pragmatically, you have to keep the murderer off the street far longer than the shoplifter just for the good of society. But I don't think anyone would even really be able to live with that worldview very long. And I don't think many people really believe it. Again, the shoplifting is enough. The gossip is enough. The glance at Bathsheba long enough to see that not only that she's beautiful, but that she's very beautiful is enough to break the law and send you out of Eden and condemn you. So it's as if you've broken all 10 commandments in that sense. But it's not equally grievous in the sight of God. There are aggravating things, uh, aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others. So I think the, the question that I want to leave you with then, I mean, I think James 2.10 is fairly easily understood and doesn't really point us toward the idea that, that all sins are equally uh, wicked. I think when you get into Matthew 5, because the Sermon on the Mount has this sort of dual purpose of both showing those who are trying to attain salvation by their own works of righteousness that they can't, like question 65, and serving as kind of this yardstick for those who have been saved, how we ought to live, right? Even uh, there are things in there like love your neighbor as yourself. That's not just to show you you can't do it. You're really supposed to actually do it, guys. Um, th this stuff is... Uh, a little bit murkier for people. When I read Jesus saying, if I look upon a woman with lust in my eye, I may as well have committed adultery because I'm guilty of it in my heart. If I hate my brother in my heart, that's tantamount to murder in God's eyes, then how could you possibly turn around and answer this question, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous, some sins in themselves, and by reason of various aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others? When Jesus just said in the sight of God, this one may as well be this one. I'm not going to answer it for you now. Maybe this will be the time when I give you a little thought homework and you will be at work or driving or Sean in the bubble bath or something and <laughs> it'll just come to your mind and you will ruminate on it for a while, jot down some thoughts. I think this could be an interesting conversation. And, and ultimately, I think... Like all of this stuff, it's going to point us back again to the grace of God uh, in a big way and transition us to the next question, um, what does every sin deserve? Another really fun one, which brings us right to what is perhaps the best question we can ask and ultimately where the Heidelberg Catechism starts. What is our only hope in life and death? You got any hope for me after all this piling on with the judgment? And when the hope comes here, it's earned You've gone, you've been through the slough of despond and you get to the end and you go, oh, I need this right now. And then the grace comes pouring down and the fountains wash the, the muck and mire off you. And it's, 
great. I love the Westminster. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine we're seeing this morning. Thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that we have uh, the opportunity to to discuss it, to uh, sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, and to, to Lord, uh, follow you together as your disciples. We pray that you be with us uh, as we worship in our, our service at 11 o'clock, Lord, that you would be glorified, we would be edified, and made more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.